that's what I want to affirm is that we're committed to diving deep and um, not just diving deep for the sake of diving deep, but having expository exaltation, as Piper would put it, where we worship God through a deeper understanding of the text. So I'm, I'm really, I really don't have any creative intro. I, I normally try to make my way there somehow, but I don't really have anything. We're just going to dive right into the text itself. If you're following along on the outline, which is in band, I write those after I write the lessons so that it's a way that you guys can <laughs> see that I do have some structure and I'm not just bouncing around endlessly. Um, so we're going to start out with Paul's identity, and we're going to talk a little bit about Paul's view of himself. Now, we, we addressed that word Paul from a very different perspective last time. We used that first word of uh, Colossians. I have that handed out once again, Colossians word one. Paul. So we talked about scholarly perspectives on who wrote the book. We are not going to do that this time. Um, we talked about all the debates that have surrounded Paul. But tonight I want to share with you something much greater, much more important. How does Paul view Paul? We've talked about how scholars view Paul 2,000 years later. But how does Paul view Paul? And he always, every greeting, every introduction to a book, he always puts something about himself. Sometimes a bondservant of Jesus Christ. But here we have this phrase, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul sees himself as an apostle. Now this word has a general and a specific meaning. Would anyone care to offer the general meaning of the word apostolos? Like what is, what is the word itself mean in its generic use in the New Testament? And how would it be translated? It's a little bit of a Greek question, so I apologize. But not, yeah, let's go. I imagine it would just mean something like speaker on behalf of. Yeah, it's literally just messenger. So sometimes you may see the word messenger translated. So in Philippians, you may see that Epaphroditus is called a messenger. That's your translators hiding the word apostle behind there into a more generic meaning, <clears throat> general meaning that somebody who is sent, somebody going with a message. But in the New Testament, it's also used in a specific context, and it came to represent that group of 12 that Christ had worked with, obviously minus Judas uh, plus um, Matthias, and then um, Paul as well. So these are a specific group of men that were appointed to a specific position by Christ and his church. They saw the risen Savior, and they testify to the resurrection. Now, in this greeting, I think it's noteworthy. Timothy, we are all messengers of the gospel, of course. We are all, we're all supposed to proclaim the gospel, yet he does not introduce Timothy as an apostle. He introduces himself alone as an apostle. I wanted to turn over to Acts chapter 1. This is that text where we've just had Judas. You know, we're coming hot off the press. Judas has hung himself. And he has fallen, and all this has gone down. And now we're, as a church here in Acts, deciding who's going to replace this dude, how are we going to go forward. And I think it's insightful to look at how they address the situation, because it gives insight into how they viewed the specific position of apostleship. And we'll draw a couple things out. The reason I want to do this is, I've, and I'll talk about this in a moment, I've run into some interesting views on what that word apostle means. And so I wanted to address its specific use as an office, quote-unquote, within the church. Acts chapter 1, 21 through 26. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the times of the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, 
beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us and witness to his resurrection. So this is, there's three things that I want to draw out here. Number one, that this is somewhat of a formal position to be taken. It wasn't just like, oh yeah, we're all messengers. Like there was a sense of formality, like who's going to replace him as one of the 12. There's a sense in which it was an office, a position. And so I, I want to establish that there is this dichotomy of usage between just generic messenger and office within the New Testament. Second, they had to have been around for the whole time. That was one of the qualifications that they were debating is like, okay, we need somebody who's been with us for this whole time. They saw the re resurrection and have been with us since Christ was baptized by John. So they really wanted someone who is an OG, so to speak. They, they wanted like a real disciple who had been there for the whole time. And I don't, according to, as far as I know, Matthias is not mentioned in any of the gospel record. I, I didn't study that, but it's just, he was there in the background the whole time listening to these sermons of Christ. He knew it just like the apostles knew it. Third, um, they knew that it was the Lord's decision of appointing a man to that position. So they came down to two people that had been there the whole time, and then they said, this is in the Lord's hands, let's cast lots over it. But they affirmed that it was God's sovereign choice in deciding who his apostles were that he was going to send this uh, group of messengers forth. Now I say this because one of Paul's identifying factors about himself, uh, which is that he carried a specific place in God's structure in the church. That is, he, in a moment we're going to turn to Galatians. He saw himself as specifically called by God to fulfill the role of an apostle in the New Testament church. It wasn't just that I happened to get converted one day and I happened to have this vision, but rather from before the time that he was born, he was chosen for that role in the church. Let's go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 12, 27 through 31. This is another text that emphasizes that there are specific offices or gifts within the church. It's not just that everyone's everything, but rather that there are specifically a class of apostles. Acts 12, or Acts 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 27 through 31. So obviously the point there is that he, you know, in context, it's about spiritual gifts, and he's saying not you are not always, and you're not, not all of us are apostles or prophets or teachers or healing people. You know, we each have our unique place, but that meant they have a place, <laughs> and that's the point I wanted to draw out of that text is that apostles had a unique position within the New Testament church. I had not encountered this sort of thing until I went to Ghana, which is saturated with a more charismatic version of Christianity and they speak English and you run into apostle so-and-so in the church over in this town. And I like, it just, I, I didn't, but I was just like, no, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. Um, and it, it was interesting cause I'd never come across that before, 
But there are people within various movements of Christianity who view themselves as, as an apostle. And we didn't get into hashing out what they meant by that term. But I found that very interesting because in the strictest sense, they didn't qualify. And neither did Timothy. Timothy was picked up along the way. It wasn't like he had seen the teachings and crucifixion of Christ as far as we know. And so there is a distinction. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother. Not that being a brother is bad. It's one of the most wondrous things about the New Testament. We're going to get into that. But there is a distinct difference between those two groups. Any thoughts on why Paul would identify this way? Why would he say, you know, he does different things, different times. Why would Paul say an apostle of Jesus Christ? Why is he wanting to identify himself with that label? Authority. Sometimes, yes. If I remember correctly, how it was understood to me was it was to give him a sense, like Chloe said, a sense of authority. Sure. But, I mean, are you going to listen to apostle or are you just going to be listening to the servant of the Lord? I don't know about you, but I'm going to go with the one with the higher title. <laughs> right. Um, and so absolutely, there were times, particularly, and we're going to have this read over in just a minute. I actually really would really encourage you to leave your Bibles open to Colossians 1 and hear 2 Corinthians 1, 1 through 2 read just to see how similar they are. Sometimes, particularly in 2 Corinthians, Paul is going to use it as people are challenging my apostleship. I, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to, you know, I'm going to have to lay it down just a little bit. And so he's going to say, I'm an apostle. I'm commissioned by Christ. The words that I carry, carry divine authority. I have the divine seal to instruct you. That is absolutely a meaning of that. Another meaning that I was told was kind of just a loose basic meaning. It's like an apostle is generally someone who has uh, had personal experience with Christ. And yes. Paul, if I remember correctly, re kind of regards himself less than the other apostles because yes. not only did he persecute everybody, but he wasn't actually spending like time with Christ. He just kind of like got knocked off his course by Christ, as it were. But it was a more... Uh, Yes, and I, there's not much textual basis for this. I don't, I find it interesting, to say the very least, that Paul got his three years in the desert after the rest of the apostles had gotten three years with Christ. So we don't know what went down in that desert. But I find it intriguing that it's a three-year time period where Paul could have been instructed in the same way to have that same equipping that the rest did. We have no way of knowing, though, of course. But, and beyond just the authority side, this is Paul's identification factor. So we have no indication necessarily that anyone is challenging his authority in the church at Colossae. But in 2 Corinthians 1, 1 through 2, that's definitely the context. 2 Corinthians 1, 1 through 2 with an eye on Colossians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, the church of God that is in Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So similar introduction, and he's seeking to defend his apostleship. Over in Ephesians, I'm not aware of any challenge to his apostolic authority, but Paul uses the same title, Ephesians 1, 1 through 2. Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, through the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful to Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So let me ask you a question here. Is Paul being arrogant here? And why or why not? What's your take on that? Does Paul come off a little arrogant when he's flaunting his apostolic title here? I would say no, because when you are one establishing a church or trying to establish authority, you need to kind of come off and be like, these are my credentials, right? So like, if I'm going to look for a doctor, I'm going to look for a guy that has MD or some extra letters. You know, I'm not going to just look at some guy that has a shack on the east side and say that he can fix me up. You know what I mean? So yeah. there's, there's importance in credentials at times. And so when somebody that has been endowed with the authority that he has, it's important to establish that. Afterwards, when you read Romans, he's like, I'm a servant. Right. I'm a bond servant. I've already, he's already established his authority. So then he can be like, okay, this is who I am, but I'm also other things. Right. I would also say no, um, just because of what he says. So like he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Like he literally says, God put me in this position. You know, like this is not of me. This is, you know, Christ made me to be an apostle, and therefore he redirected the glory to him immediately. It's the same thing, you know, not that... Not that we have that kind of position of authority just by calling ourselves Christians, but you know, we don't say, well, I'm a Christian to put ourselves on a pedestal and say, I'm this and you're not. It's like, no, I am a Christian and I am joyful in that because Christ has made me to be a Christian. Sure. It's like the, the similar idea. Yeah, I don't know if you read that. I don't know if you read the next two paragraphs or not in the lesson that I sent you, but... I wanted you to catch that important phrase because I think that gives a little bit of how humble Paul views himself. It's not that Paul was going to climb the Christian corporate ladder and get to the status of apostle, but rather Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Catch this important thing. God's sovereign choice to make Paul an apostle removes any and all arrogance from the claim because it was nothing of his own doing. I mean, you, how are you supposed to be like, yeah, I didn't do that. You know, like it's different when, when you were gifted something, when you were chosen for something that you were quite literally doing the opposite of. We read a moment ago how the early church recognized that it was God's sovereign choice here we read Paul commenting on how much it was God's sovereign choice over in Galatians. Galatians, we're back to defending apostleship, and he's talking about, I didn't choose this life, I literally was doing the opposite. And God found me, and he changed me. Galatians 1, 11 through 16. brothers and sisters that the gospel I preached is not of human origin I did not receive it from any man nor was I taught it rather I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ for you have heard my precious way of life and Judaism how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, uh, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, 
was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. So Paul's saying, when God who separated me from before I was born, when he wanted to, when he was good and ready, by his grace, he chose me and intervened. And so Paul here is really drawing off of this idea that it is not any of my doing. And this is the same thing that Jesus taught over in his high priestly prayer in the section for the uh, apostles, particularly John chapter 17, 6 through 12. A little bit of a longer reading, but I included it because I think it shows... I was like, oh, maybe this is the end of Jesus talking about his sovereignty. Oh, nope, is in the next verse too. So I just kept including more and more verses. Uh, John 17, 6 through 12. Hear how Jesus talks about how the Father gave the apostles and selected them and how Jesus kept them and selected them and kept them and now it's time for you to keep them and we're going to keep the ones you selected and they're going to go, you know, it's just a very sovereign language here in the high priesthood prayer. Now, I want to be fair to the context here and say that these verses are particularly referring to God's sovereign election of the apostles. Hmm? Yes. Son of destruction, is that Judas? Yes, yes. So, I want to be fair to the context and say that this is referring to the apostles. These verses are particularly referring to God's sovereign election of the apostles. But I wholeheartedly believe in God's sovereign election of all the saints. We'll talk about that word saints here in a moment. And so I want to draw the same application that I'm drawing for Paul to all of you. There should never be, and I know some of you and myself are of this persuasion, there should never be a proud Calvinist. That is the most oxymoronic statement that I've ever heard. I believe a doctrine that has nothing to do with me doing anything at all, and I'm arrogant about it. What? That's the dumbest thing ever. But to be fair to the Reformed community, you know what they're known for? Being pretty arrogant. That's stupid. That's a terrible path to go down. And if your theology isn't changing your life in the same way, that's a, that's a bad sign for you and how you're doing your theology. And so I want to encourage you, those of you who embrace the sovereignty of God in electing his saints to salvation... I understand 
that there's a sense in which you're like, I get it, and other people don't, and that that sort of sensation can lead to an arrogant mindset. When you when you're like, when you're an expert in your field and you try to explain somebody and they're like, yeah yeah yeah, that I get that, and you're like, no you don't, you really don't. It can it can well up those arrogant feelings. I just want to encourage you in the same way that the Apostle Paul is not being arrogant by claiming that he's an apostle. We cannot be arrogant in our doctrine or in our Christianity if this is what we believe. So I encourage you, if you embrace the sovereignty of God and salvation, forsake all arrogance in that claim and in your Gnostic-like tendencies to feel superior to everyone because you know more, and rather realize that you were a God-hater too, not that long ago, and you should be humbled by the fact that God chose you of nothing about you and has exalted you to be a son of the Most High. That should be a very humbling experience, not one that produces pride. I skipped a page. That wasn't helpful. Paul's comrade in his relationship to him, point B in the outline. Now, Paul has established that he is an apostle to a church that he has never been to. Now, remember, Paul has never visited this church. It's important at the out to, to say that I am an apostle. This is, here's the divine stamp on this message that I'm about to write. But he also reveals that he doesn't work alone. Paul's work is not done alone. This is an incredibly important New Testament concept as well that we do not, there is no, go at it alone strategy in terms of ministry. And he he says, Timothy and I are on the same page. We preach the same gospel when he affirms him in this title. Now, we're not going to trace Timothy through the New Testament, but suffice it to say here that Paul came across him when he was a young man, and he basically became his son in the faith. Paul does not refer to him here as a son as he does in other places, but rather as a brother. When I read this word brother, it made me think back to some of Jesus' teaching, which I'm sure is where Paul got it from. Jesus taught this in Matthew chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to have these passages read, but as we read these, I'm going to ask you this very broad question. What do you think Jesus is getting at with these sayings here? What do you think he's trying to highlight? Matthew chapter 12 46 through 50, Matthew 19, 28 through 29. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Matthew 19, 28, 29. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So they're going to inherit a hundredfold brothers and sisters and, you know, that lands and all this sort of thing. What is, what is Jesus' point? When he's talking about brothers and sisters, 
in this way and kind of cross comparing it against our physical relationships. What's his point in that? And I want to do this because we throw the word brother or bro around quite flippantly in our culture. I don't, I don't know why it's a thing, but it is a thing in our culture to say bro. I want to recover the richness and kind of win this, reclaim this term back here. What is its richness trying to be stated here when Paul calls Timothy a brother? And what does that have to do with Jesus' teaching was my original question. I'm just going to take a stab at this. Let's go. It's to emphasize the fact that they are close, extremely close. For those of you who are only children and don't have siblings, I have three brothers. So, with brothers, there's a very tight-knit thing. There are things that I've told my brother Luke that there's probably a good chunk of people that do not have that information. Yeah. And there's probably a reason for that. Um, but uh, just that tight knitness, since they're all in Christ and we're supposed to be one body, that tight knitness carries forward to brothers in Christ. Sure. So Jesus' brother and mother are outside, and you know, yeah. those familial ties are close. But then he turns around and says, "I don't know who are my brothers." And, you know, like, you know, like, what a, what a what a stupid response, right? No, what is he getting at? If if you're that close with your family, what's the point? What's the point in drawing that analogy? Seeing we're supposed to be as close with fellow Christians as we are with our family. Yes, our fellowship in the gospel is deeper and more real than our family by birth. Our birth gives us a mom, a dad, a siblings, and an inheritance. But our new birth gives us moms and dads and siblings and an inheritance that far exceeds what we are used to here on earth. Our family should, and I know this isn't the case for everyone, our family should be the closest relationships that we have in this earth. Yet those of you who share in the gospel have a family that is far greater than what you've experienced in your home. Look around you. Look at all these people around you. My loves, this is this is your family. These are your brothers and sisters. And I you know, I I probably am closer with my family than a lot of you in this room. But who are our real brothers and sisters? And thankfully, many of us have Christian parents, so this overlaps. But who are our real brothers and sisters in life? Those who we share in the gospel with, right? That's so much more meaningful than the fact that you share molecules with people, right? I mean, the earth is going to burn up, but God's law and his gospel abides forever even after these particular molecules are done. There is no marriage in the kingdom, which means all sorts of implications for the family. It's God's institution. It matters, and our culture certainly attacks it, but that's an inferior bond to what we have here. One commentator pointed something out that I thought was profound. He said, for a Jew to call a Jew a brother is no big deal, but for a Jew to call a non-Jew a brother would have been a massive deal to say that one of those dogs could be my brother. That's a different level. 
And so when Paul's going to turn around here and say something about brothers in Christ, that makes all the difference. So people that should have no business being together are tied together closer than blood. Now imagine if the church embraced that mindset, right? That would be, that'd be different. That'd be different. Can you imagine how much fewer church splits there would be? Like if you felt like, you know, like we're like, oh, I can get mad at family, but I'll like, I'm stuck with them. You know, like people say stuff like that. But our other family in the gospel, (laughs) no, you, you get mad at them and you leave, right? That's, but you're supposed to be tighter, you're supposed to be more meaningful and tight. Like, my money is your money, right? In a family, money goes in one pot, right? My money is your money. My land is your land. My, my time is your time. My everything is yours. That would hit different if we lived that way as a church. And, and you know what? That's exactly how the Acts church lived. Like, they poured everything into one coffer and they were that tight-knit. And so I, I, I don't know, I don't necessarily have an exact image that I see that the church would be different if we lived that way, but it would be. You know, we wouldn't, I don't think, I don't think most churches could handle being around each other for more than a max of two hours. And, <laughs> and those churches are blessed because you don't even have to talk to people for like an hour and a half of it. You're just like, hi, yes, I'm good, thank you. Yeah, I'm, mm-hmm. Yep, I'm going to go to my same seat that I always sit in. You know, like, we couldn't handle that. We couldn't literally not handle most people for more than 30 minutes, I don't think. And so I just want to encourage you to reclaim this term brother and sister, depending on which NIV translation you're using, and, and and really just recover the richness of how close we're supposed to be. And when Paul calls Timothy and the people in Colossae a brother, he is saying that there's this union that transcends everything and that he's going to tell about all his ministry to them and how much he's poured his life into people he's never even met. And it's all on account of how radically different and deeper and more intimate our relationships can be as a result of the gospel intimacy in Christ. Imagine if we forsook our familial groups of individuality and lived as cohesive families in one. So, on to Paul's recipients. Point number C, or point letter C. Saints. Last time we focused on that word to, right? We talked about if there's a to, there's a from, and we talked about the city of Colossae. But we're going we're gonna to shift just a little bit. Who is it to? Who is it to? To saints and faithful brothers in Christ. Now, I thought of our conversation the other day. What does that word saints mean? uh, Let me ask her. I'll just stop. What does that word saints mean? No. (laughs) What does that word saints mean? All the followers of Christ. Sure. What other perspectives do exist on sainthood? (laughs) (laughs) Elevated followers of Christ wherein you are special to the point that you have your acts are kept in a place that can be used to help fellow Christians get to heaven and miss purgatory. I honestly tried to start researching it and it was so complicated that I I was like I really don't have time for this today. But that I so I just did like a quick word search like 
saints in the New Testament, you know, just something simple. And there was such an overwhelming abundance of the use of that word that I, I really almost didn't include anything, but I wanted to include Ephesians 3.8. I felt, uh, I understand that this is not a watertight argument here, but I want to underscore the fact that Paul, who by literally any church's definition would be a saint, Paul views himself as less than other people who he's referring to as saints, which to me underscores how all Christians are saints. Because if Paul's down here and he's referring to people like people are better than Paul, that's a that's a pretty I mean that's a pretty high calling, right? It's not like you just I woke up this morning and I'm as cool as the Apostle Paul, right? I mean it it's something that is given. It is something God sovereignly bestows on people is sainthood. It is not something that the Pope posthumously, you know, sprinkles you with is sainthood, you know. <laughs> so I, I just want to read Ephesians three eight. He is we, we we love the Apostle Paul. He's he's the best. But yet Paul doesn't see it that way. He sees he sees himself as just, just one of the saints. Just one of the guys that happens to be an apostle. Ephesians three eight. Right, so he's the least of all the saints. I just found Paul's word usage there to be rather intriguing. You would not necessarily think of him as the least of all the saints. And that's how that's how humble he was in his estimation of the ranking of the saints. Now, the saints are those who are set apart for God's working in the world. The same root word for holy, we talk about that word holy often means set apart, you know, special, something like that. Same root word, it's like the holy ones. Um, but they're also considered faithful brothers here. Those who have kept the faith in God in one sense that they have believed the faith and at the same time they have been faithful to it and have not walked away for it. So why are we brothers? Paul kind of comes back around to this word brothers. Why are we brothers? Why is, why is it that we are one big happy family with purpose together in a lost world? He answers this question by saying that we are in Christ. Now, we better get comfortable with phrases like in Christ, in God, in stuff in Colossians because it's going to come back a thousand times. And I just I tried to really think about I tried to think about that phrase in Christ and really pin down a good definition of it. I really I struggle. I didn't say struggled, I say struggle on how to really get that down into words. Like, I feel it. I understand it in my heart. Like, by analogy, I, like you can say that you're into video games, but it's not just that you're into Christ. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm really into this Christ thing. But, like, you're in Christ. It, this common phrase is rather elusive to my mind. So the best I could come up with is that speaking in some sort of miraculous spiritual sense it is as if we have all been transported to literally within the esoteric proverbial body of Christ and have become united with him. We've become molecules of his body in the analogy sense. And 
in becoming one with him, in him, going inside him, we have become united. And this is a kind of language that we catch in the New Testament, that we're one with him in his death, in his resurrection, in his afflictions, in his righteousness, etc. We've all become united in Christ. And then it says, in Christ, in God. If you've seen Platt's, comp, like the tote illustration that he does, you've in Christ, in God, and the Holy Spirit in you, and this whole thing that he does. But it's a very, it's a, you try to start thinking about it, and you're like, <laughs> that's a, that's a tough one. You know, like, what does that even mean? But yet, somehow, we have been so connected with Christ, and all of us, having gone through this process of be going into Christ, and uniting with him, and becoming one with him, we've become one with each other, because we've become one with Christ. As we have all become molecules of his body, so we have enjoined ourselves one to another in a way that we could not have before, before we had entered into this relationship with Christ. So I asked my stab at it, and I tried to bring in some New Testament language and to not say anything that's heretical and keep us on track, but it's such an esoteric idea. The, the analogy that would, of course, go with it is try to explain to me, riddle to me how you become one with the other person in marriage. Right? Like we say that for you. Like, I'm going to become one flesh with them. And then you're like, what does that even mean? I have no idea what that means. Like, I'm one with them, but you've experienced it, right? I mean, if as you are progressing towards marriage and then becoming one with that person and consummating the marriage, you've experienced that sensation of what it feels like to have that intimacy on that level where you are, but it's very hard to put into words. And so that's that's what I'm driving at here is that when he uses this word brothers, that we're faithful brothers, that we're saints, together we have become that in Christ. We share this new bond with others who have done the same. And then guess what he tags on the end? At Colossae. Notice he didn't put like to the to Colossae and the saints and faithful brothers there. It, it doesn't really matter where they're at. Colossi, America, Ethiopia. Paul doesn't really care. It's saints and faithful brothers who also happen to be at Colossi. Your location, your background, your ethnicity, your experiences, your nationality, all these different things, gender, societal role, whatever, it does not matter in the sense that we become one in Christ. And so there is no distinction, neither Jew nor Greek, Slave nor free, male nor female. Now, in the other sense, in the earthly roles, we still maintain these societal roles and are still man and woman and all these things. That's not Paul's point in eliminating those distinctions. But in Christ, spiritually speaking, we've become one. There is no, I'm better than you and you know, I'm, I'm this and I'm that. It's that we have become united in Christ and experience the same bond no matter where you're from or what your background is. So I just, I found, I found it kind of, cute in some sense that we are located on the earth where we are located on this earth is literally no importance so long as we are all located in the kingdom of heaven your citizenship is not something to be considered of Colossae or hierapolis or laodicea doesn't really matter ephesus or rome it matters if you're in the kingdom so then paul ends with his classic reminder that he always seems to finish finish these with um the Greek word for, uh, I should have written this down. The Greek word for grace is charis, which is 
very phonetically similar to the to the Hebrew word, like it, it, like if you compare it on paper, the Hebrew word for peace, like you know how like the Hebrew greeting is like shalom, but like the Greek translation has like the same C H O start to it or C H A start rather, and so it's kind of a play on words where Paul is like taking this play off of this classic Hebrew greeting and saying grace to you and kind of morphing it into this Christian theology with this Hebrew richness to it. So he starts with this classic thing that Paul is going to conclude this greeting by saying that we have been given grace, which is God's favor towards the unworthy. We are his saints, we who are his saints rather, are saints simply because of the grace of God and not as a result of our effort. Before we received the grace of God, we were certainly not saints. On the other hand, we were enemies of God. And those who are enemies are at war and by our, the very definition are hostile and certainly have no peace with God. So here in this greeting, we, we have such an, uh, a beautiful picture of the gospel. God in his sovereignty gives grace to people who are enemies of God. And when we repented of our rebellion against God and salvation, God in his great grace allowed us to have peace with him by the blood of the cross. And we're going to come to that phrase again in Colossians. It's only a result of the work of Christ and God's grace that there is any peace at all. So those who have the right to extend this grace, excuse me, there is one who has the right to extend this grace, and that is God the Father. So we have this picture of the gospel that God the Father gives grace, which produces his saints. And those saints who quit their rebellion, by very definition of being a saint, are then made to have peace with God. So you get this beautiful picture of the theology that Paul espouses in every letter, basically, of what's to come, that grace leads to peace with God, forgiveness with God, and we are no longer at enmity with God. Now, if you've read other greetings from Paul, you notice a lack of something here. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. But that's not in there. Why? I don't know. There's no good reason to me. He's about to go on and talk about Christ more than he does in any other epistle. So why he chooses to leave that out here? I don't know. But he changed his standard epistolary greeting. And I just wanted to let you know that I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> that's that's it. Like I, I compared these. I was cross-analyzing his greetings. And I was like, I got nothing. I see no reason. But he didn't. And it's still absolutely a great truth um, that God the Father is the one bestowing grace and peace. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just a, it's just a nuance that you won't see in other of Paul's epistles. So lastly, I want to take the next couple minutes and um, have some applications. I happen to conveniently not note that there were 10 applications in um, the outline, just not to scare you. But there are 10 things I want to draw out to you in closing. They're short, but... God, number one, God has placed into the church various gifts and offices. And in so doing, God gave each of us a place. He gave you a role. He gave you a purpose in the body. That's awesome right there. The fact that God is sovereignly giving roles to people in his body 
is amazing. That means you have a place and a role to fulfill in the body of Christ. Isn't that wonderful? That we have something to do and a purpose and a place where we belong in a group. That's what, I mean, how many times do you want, do you want to be a part of a group and to find your niche, right? That's what you want. And we have that because God has sovereignly orchestrated it to where we all have our place to place to be in this wonderful body called the church. But accordingly, we should act respectfully and humbly toward those various giftings. Be respectful of elders and everyone else in the church for that matter. But I want to encourage you to particularly be respectful of the elders in your local church and not scripture is very clear on being hesitant to bring accusations against them and just holding them in high regard and not just being very flippant with how you deal with them because number one, they're under a lot of pressure. They don't need they don't need your gossip. They have plenty of plenty of it going on already. And number two, it's that respect for their spiritual authority. Not that they're better than you, right? We're all equal in the gospel, but we have different roles. And just as God the Father is the head of the Son in some sense, it doesn't mean that there's a difference in spiritual equality between God the Father and God the Son. There is equality in essence, yet difference in roles. And we need to be comfortable with that and respectful of that difference. Number two, this is kind of the why we do that. God, in his sovereignty, directed people to certain places in the church. And I still believe that God calls certain people and places and chooses certain people in his church so that the body functions optimally. Three, and this is kind of, I'm just walking through this text, but in a application sense, okay? So now we're on to the Timothy area. As we work in our respective roles that God has given, we are work, to work together proclaiming the gospel as one voice, one people to the nations of the world. We should not have a go at it alone strategy, but rather that we work coordinatedly for the gospel of Jesus. Number four, in working to in working with people to proclaim the truth of God, we experience relationship like none other in this world. We find a family like no other when we are executing the chief end of man in sharing the gospel. And we said it at the beginning. What is the chief end of man? I forgot I put it in here. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And as we do that together, then we form relationships that are more meaningful than your physical family. And we have something where we can honestly look at somebody and call them our brother. And we can honestly look at them. And in some cases, we can honestly give them a holy kiss. I'm just... I'm not calling anyone out. I'm just calling someone particularly out. (laughs) Number five, if you know, you know what I'm talking about. Number five, when we proclaim the gospel, God is building a kingdom of people who are set apart for him him and for faithfulness to the truth. um, And we enjoy even more intimate companions than before. So as this truth goes out, as we make more disciples then we're going to have more brothers. And then that text becomes true where we have hundredfold brothers. As this gospel goes out, then we have more and more family. As you, you all remember Valetta, right? Like Valetta Crumley, we went to her house over Christmas, right? Amazing story. I dropped by her the other day and she was like, I can't think of anywhere in the world where I could travel where I wouldn't know somebody who's a Christian. And I could just, you know, I was like, that's amazing. But that, like, that, that to me was just like a walking fulfillment of that promise. Right, you're gonna have lands and brothers and mothers and all this if you forsake everything and follow me. And she was a perfect example of that. She, I was talking about Ukraine, and she was like, 
oh man, I have such special connections with Ukraine. As you know, and she just went on with all these like close people she has in Ukraine. I'm like, of, of course you do. <laughs> but of course she does. That's what God promised. That if you forsake all and follow, then you're gonna have all these connections. And these connections are going to be greater than your physical family. Things like Saturday, where you worship together for five hours. When was the last time you and your family, physical family, did that together? It's probably been a while or never. And that's so much more special than the mundane things of life. And so I just want to emphasize once again that as we proclaim the gospel, as we work in unison, as we don't do it alone, as we have purpose to our meeting, then all of a sudden this purpose-driven relationship results in very intimate relationship. Number six, yes, we enjoy this intimate fellowship only and only, only, only as a direct result of Christ. There is no true union in anything other than Christ. There is nothing that can take people from every ethnic background and walk of life and combine them into loving relationship like the gospel and Jesus Christ. That's a big deal culturally, right? Like seeking diversity for the sake of diversity is one of the most ridiculous things that I've ever heard because that is the most shallow-minded way to create relationship that I can ever think of. I'm serious. Like we should proclaim the gospel to all men and be excited about the diversity that comes with that. But it's the gospel of Christ that unifies. It's nothing about our physical existence that is unifying or not unifying. I am closer with people who don't speak my language than I am with people who look exactly like me and don't believe the gospel. You are closer to people you have never met than people you meet every single day that look exactly like you, which is a weird thought. But fundamentally, you are closer to them on the other side of the world who you'll never know, but you will know intimately in eternity than you are to people at work. Seven, your, uh, your background does not matter. On that same point, Colossi, America, white, black, Chick-fil-A, Popeyes, it does not matter. <laughs> The gospel unifies all those who believe in Christ. It is truly us against the world, and there should be no room for division among those who believe in that same gospel. Now, is there division between who those, those who do not profess the same gospel? Of course, because you have a fundamental dichotomy in belief. But even massive things like Chick-fil-A and Cracker Barrel and all these things, we can be unified in Christ. Eight, the gospel then is a gospel that is all of grace. There is nothing about it in which we should ever be proud. There is nothing about the love of God to which we should ever, that we could ever ascend to on our own. Anything we could ever earn on our own, it is all unmerited favor. It is truly something that is not gettable, right? Like the American dream is that you can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you put your mind to. And in this earth, I would actually agree with that mindset. Like in terms of physical things, yes, you can do just about whatever you put your mind to and really believe in. But in terms of spiritual things, there's such a great gulf between us and God that there's nothing you could ever do to earn that favor. Number nine, a wondrous portion of this gracious gospel then is peace. There's so much to be said about this, and we will say plenty about it, and it's going to be one of the most moving texts that I've ever read. 
how often do we struggle in the dregs of guilt? How often do we feel that God should rightfully condemn us with the world, disregarding the forgiveness that we have in Christ? And I'm thankful that I see less and less of that in this group as we become more theologically sound. But still, those feelings of guilt, and you think back on things you did before you were more mature, and you're really not happy with yourself now, and not just not happy, like, oh, that was dumb, haha, but like inside you feel not good because you're like, that was, that was bad. That was really bad, and I should not have done that. And you just feel horrendous. That minimizes the grace of God because you are then eliminating the peace element out of it by by enjoy or entertaining those I'd hardly say enjoy but entertaining those feelings of guilt you minimize the peace that we have with God through the grace of God the Father. He pursued us. He put the pen in our hand. He moved our hand to sign the peace treaty. Praise God and relish that forgiveness that we have. And then number 10 and our final point. James says that every good and perfect gift is from God with whom there is no shadow of turning. And I just want you to remind you at this point that after we have looked at all these things that we have been called to a specific role that we don't do it alone and that not doing it alone produces brothers and that when we do it together with our brothers we produce more brothers and that we're together in Christ and that in Christ we have grace and as a result of that grace we have peace and forgiveness I want to remind you that these good and perfect gifts come from God the Father and I my, my mind went to the story of the ten lepers right only one went back only one went back and so I would encourage you if you enjoy these truths, which I certainly hope you do, then not only should we share them, but also thank God for the grace that you have given to me, a horrendous sinner who has no claim on your love. Remember who this grace has come from and thank him profusely with your mouth. I mean, like in a relationship, it's actually like, I don't know how many of you are words of affirmation people, but it's nice, right? Like you... You like hearing that something you did has been received and appreciated. And, you know, maybe maybe you're like a acts of service sort of person, but maybe those two could come together. We serve God with our life, which you should do, not just say words, but you also use your mouth to tell him thank you. You say thank you. You thank him with your life. And so I just want to encourage you that if you love the grace that you're in, if you love the peace that you're in, you should thank him in an actionable and verbal way it's encouraging isn't it the words of paul are just an encouragement to my heart and i thoroughly believe that god has much in store for us through this book of colossians it's such it's just chock full with such incredible truth about our freedom and our forgiveness in christ and how he's triumphed over demonic powers that i i really can't wait to cover it with you all um, and if all that was just you know, packed into the greeting, just wait for, just wait for what's coming. It's, it's going to be great. There's so much spiritual benefit to be had out of this text. So I appreciate you guys.